if you don't know me, my name is Jake. I'm the youth pastor here at Emmanuel, um, and it's always a, a great pleasure to be given the opportunity to preach in big church on Sunday mornings. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can begin turning to Psalm 119. This morning we'll be in verses 129 through 136. If you don't have a Bible, um, there's one if you look in the bottom of the seat in front of you, uh, you can grab that and borrow that. If you don't have a Bible, um, we'd like to give that to you as a gift this morning. If you don't have a Bible at all, you're welcome to take that home and keep that as our gift to you. Um, so we'd like to give that to you. So if you've been with us the last um, few months, you know that we've been in an extended series on the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. Um, but if you're new, let me go ahead and give you some info about Psalm 119 as a whole that I think will help you understand our particular section this morning. So the first uh, contextual point is that Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem based on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's 22 letters, 22 sections, and each letter is given a separate section. So this morning, we're on the letter Pei. Pei is the 17th letter in the Hebrew alphabet. That means we're 17 weeks into a 22-week sermon series. So those of you that are good at math, after today, that means we just have five more weeks in Psalm 119. So if you were able to read Psalm 119 in Hebrew, you'd notice immediately something pretty interesting. In Hebrew, you read right to left, and each section in Psalm 119 always begins with the same letter. The first word starts with the same letter each time. So this morning, we're in the pay section. If you notice, each word starts with that same letter, the letter pay. Uh, one last contextual note about Psalm 119 is that almost all 176 verses in Psalm 119 have some sort of a reference to the word of God. Now they use different English words like law, testimonies, way, precepts, commandments, word, and that kinds of things. But for the most part, they're all synonyms, talking about the same thing, talking about God's word, the word that he's given to us as a whole. So before we dig into Psalm 119, starting in verse 129, let me give you the big idea of our section, and then we'll read it together. So our big idea is this, and we've just sung about this, that the word of God is wonderful, and it changes the people of God. The word of God is wonderful, and it changes the people of God. So let's go ahead and dig into our text this morning, Psalm 119, 129 through 136. The psalmist says this, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. God, this morning, we want to be faithful to your word. We want to be faithful, faithful to what you've 
inspired through the psalmist this morning, that you're wonderful, that your word is wonderful, and that it changes us. We pray that you would help us to do that as we study it together this morning. Amen. So I want you to think for a moment of something that you would say is wonderful, something that you love, something that's amazing, something that you would define as wonderful. Now, I want you to save the churchy answers for just a minute. We'll get there in the sermon. Yes, Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, Bible, all those things are wonderful. But I'm talking about perhaps your favorite sports team. Do we have any Texas Ranger fans in the house this morning? Texas Rangers? The Rangers were absolutely wonderful this year. Maybe you're not a sports person. Uh, Maybe music is your thing. Maybe you have a band or a singer who you think is just wonderful. Or maybe for you it's a a particular movie, or maybe it's a a type of food or a certain meal. Maybe it's holidays like Thanksgiving, which we just celebrated, or or Christmas, which we're going to be celebrating the rest of this month. Or maybe it's none of those things. Maybe you find your Sunday afternoon naps to be wonderful, or perhaps Sunday morning naps if the preacher is not super engaging that morning. I wonder if there are any art fans in the room this morning. Now, I wouldn't consider myself a huge fan of art, but I did take one semester of an art appreciation course in college that I think makes me pretty much an expert on the topic. So, in my art appreciation course, I was introduced to the wonderful paintings of a man named Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. And you can see from this picture, his painting technique is... uh, Similar to my four-year-old son is to just drizzle the paint and splash it and pour it all over the canvas until you have wonderful paintings like you see the one on the screen. Now, I say wonderful sort of tongue-in-cheek because if I'm honest, I personally don't really think Jackson Pollock paintings are all that wonderful. Um, One semester of an art class was enough for me to realize that, that I don't appreciate some types of works of art. However, I must be in the minority in that opinion because this painting on the screen in 2006, this painting, which is called Jackson Pollock Number 5, sold for $140 million. In 2006, at that time, that set the record for the most expensive painting ever sold. $140 million for that. Some of you are thinking about changing career paths now. Someone thought this painting, Jackson Pollock number five, was wonderful enough, beautiful enough, valuable enough to pay $140 million for it. And I look at that and I say, I just don't, I don't get it. When I look at Jackson Pollock paintings, I don't see beauty. They're not wonderful to me. I see a a confusing chaotic mess with, with no order, no rhyme, no reason to it. But church, you and I need to understand that this is the same way our world looks at this book. Our world looks at God's word and they see a confusing, chaotic mess with no order, no rhyme, or no reason. They see nothing wonderful about it. They see long lists of do's and don'ts, Stories about a God who's always angry all the time, and our world wants nothing to do with it, much like I want nothing to do with Jackson Pollock paintings. 
And church, if you and I aren't careful, we can slowly allow the world's idea of the Bible to creep into our churches and to creep into our personal lives. So we need to be, like the psalmist is here, awestruck with the beauty and the wonder of God's word. Or we'll be awestruck with the beauty and wonder of some lesser thing. We'll allow a created thing to amaze us more than the creator himself. We're learning through monthly catechisms in youth that that's the very definition of idolatry. When you worship a created thing over the creator himself. The triune God is wonderful and he's revealed himself to us in his wonderful word. For the psalmist, the wonderful nature of God and his word, it induced a response from him. It induced a change in him and it ought to be so for us as well. When we rub shoulders with God through his word, he doesn't leave us like he found us. The people of God are ever conforming to the image of God. And this morning, we're going to look at five ways that God's wonderful word changed the psalmist and in so changes us. So how does God's wonderful word change the people of God? The first is that God's wonderful word changes how we act. God's wonderful word changes how we act. Verse 129, the psalmist says, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, because of that, because of they're so wonderful, my soul is going to keep them. The wonderful nature of God's word leads the psalmist to keep God's word. The psalmist's love of God's word leads him to obey God's word. He's not doing it out of obligation. He's not doing it because his mom and dad told him to and they'll be disappointed if he doesn't. He loves God's wonderful word and so he keeps God's wonderful word. God's wonderful word changes how we act and it also changes how we think. God's wonderful word changes how we think. Notice how this plays out for the psalmist in verse 130 says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Now we've all seen uh, the cartoons where one of the characters has an idea and a light bulb goes off above his head. Uh, it's, it's the unfolding, the unraveling, the explanation, the teaching of God, God's word that makes the light bulb go off, so to speak, for God's people. And notice who this is possible, the types of people that this is made possible for. The unfolding of God's word gives light and understanding to the wise. Does it give understanding to those who are intelligent? Does it give understanding to those that can make the all-A honor roll? Does it say it's only for super religious people like priests and popes, only they can understand it? No, it says it's for the simple. It says God's word imparts understanding to the simple. Now let me caution you. If you go to work tomorrow and tell your non-Christian coworker, hey, you should believe in God's word. It's for simple people like you. <laughs> it's probably not gonna be received very well. Calling someone a simple person, person in our culture is an insult. But, but I don't think the psalmist is trying to insult his readers here by calling them simple. I think he's trying to say it's for everybody. 
It's for anyone. The unfolding of God's word, the teaching of God's word can make the light bulb go off, so to speak, for anybody. You don't have to have doctor in front of your name. You don't have to be the pope. You don't have to be a Hebrew or a Greek scholar. God's word is wonderful and it's light giving to anyone and everyone. However, I don't know if you've looked around lately at our city or our world, but many people in our city and our world don't see the wonderful nature of God's word. It hasn't changed their thoughts, their lives, their actions. The psalmist is telling us that's not because they aren't smart enough to understand it. It's because they haven't humbled themselves enough to understand it. Or perhaps many of them do understand it mentally, but they reject what they know about it. They know about God, but they hate what they know about God. Which leads us to our next point, is that the wonderful, God's wonderful word changes how we feel about God and about his word. God's wonderful word changes how we feel. Have any, any of you ever tried to convince another person of the beauty that you see in something? Maybe you've tried to convince your kids to watch a, mu- a movie that you really enjoy and you think they'll love it too and you try to convince them to love it. Uh, maybe you have a band that you tell all your friends about and you want them to enjoy it just like you do. For me, it's the Dallas Mavericks. I love watching the Dallas Mavericks. However, my wife cannot stand watching the Dallas Mavericks. She's even gone so far as to say that she hates basketball season. Can you believe that? She hates basketball season. Now, I have gone to great lengths to try to change her feelings toward the Mavericks. I've allowed her to sit on her couch and soak in the basketball brilliance of the Mavericks on our television, unfazed. I've told her stats about the team and all all the best players, doesn't care. Her feelings toward the Mavericks to this point remain unchanged. Church, we need to ask ourselves, does does God's word change how we feel? Does God's word feel wonderful to us? Now, I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time I've opened my mouth and panted for the book of Leviticus. Just can't get enough of those laws. Just give me more of those laws. Before we insist on interpreting what the psalmist says here, literally, let's think about what he's trying to communicate to his readers. I think he's saying that he has a deep longing for God's word. If he goes seasons without it, He begins to pant for it. He begins to desire it, much like a dog desires or pants for water when he has none. And this is not the only time this idea is recorded in the Psalms. Psalm 42, perhaps you you know the hymn by these same words. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now if you notice something interesting here, when you look at both of these verses, in our text, Psalm 119 The psalmist says he's panting for God's word. In Psalm 42, he says he pants for God himself. See, God's word and God himself cannot be separated. God's word is the means through which you hear from God himself. So we'll come back to this idea in a moment. God's word changes how we feel and it changes how we pray. God's word changes how we pray. 
If you look at verses 132 through 135, there's a shift in the psalm here. In the first three verses of this section, the psalmist is talking about God and about his wonderful word and the effect it's had on him. In the next four verses, he begins talking to God. He begins to ask things of God, to make requests of God. He's praying to God here in these four verses. So I have four sub-points related to what the psalmist prays for here. Now, undoubtedly, there's more than three things you could say about this prayer, more than three things you could take away from this prayer, but we're going to look at three of them this morning. So the first thing is that the psalmist prays for is he prays for God's grace. In verse 132, he prays to God, turn to me and be gracious to me. Turn to me, and as you turn to me, extend your grace to me. The psalmist knows, the psalmist realizes that God's look, God's attention, God's turning toward him, it could be very, very bad for him unless that look is also accompanied by the mercy and grace of God. God in his perfect holiness cannot overlook sin. And the psalmist knows that God is holy and he must rightly judge sin. But he also knows that God is slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love towards those who love his name. He's asking God to be faithful to his own character and extend grace to him as a repentant sinner. It's God's kindness that led the psalmist to repentance. Not a repentance that led to perfection in his life, but a truly genuine repentance. See, a truly, a truly repentant person cannot turn a blind eye to their own sin. The psalmist knows that without God's help, he's hopeless in his fight with sin. So he prays, he prays for God to help him with his sin. This is verses 133 and 134. In these two verses, he asks for God's help against his own internal fleshly desire to sin against God's word. He asks God in verse 133 to keep his steps aligned with the promises of God's word. See, the psalmist knows he's prone to wander from God's word. He's prone to stray from it. He asks God, he knows that there's sin in his life that if he wanders, sin that could get dominion over him without the steadiness of God in his word. So the psalmist knows he needs help in this internal war with sin. But he also mentions in the next verse external pressures on him to sin. Verse 134, he prays to God, redeem me from man's oppression. Saying, God, I have these, these ungodly people in my life, people who are trying to oppress me. They're tempting me with sin. They're pressuring me to give up on your word. Redeem me from them so that I may be faithful to you and faithful to your word. We face these same pressures today, church. Our hearts are just as tainted, just as prone towards sin as the psalmist was. And our world is just as oppressive toward the people of God as the psalmist was. We need God's help with sin, or sin will have dominion 
over us. So we need to pray for God's help with sin. The next thing that the psalmist prays for is he prays for God's presence. Praise for God's presence in verse 135. He says, make your face shine upon your servant. Now that language takes us back to Numbers chapter 6. In Numbers 6, God blesses Moses' brother Aaron and Aaron's sons. And he says, Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. And then that story takes us even further back in the Old Testament to Exodus 34 where God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, his face was literally glowing from being so close to the presence of God. His face was so bright that the Israelites literally made him put a veil or a cover over his face because they couldn't even look at him. His face was literally shining like the sun. Spending an extended period of time in the Lord's presence had a visible, physical effect on Moses. His face literally shone like the sun. So when the psalmist says, make your face shine upon your servant, he's saying, God, I want to be near you. I want to be in your presence. And notice how this happens in the second half of verse 135. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. See, the means through which God's face shone upon the psalmist was through the teaching of God's statutes, through the teaching of God's word. Again, you cannot separate God and his word. Each and every facet, these four verses of the psalmist's prayer, all four verses are intertwined with something about God and his word. To be near to God, you must be near to his word. The last thing we're going to know about God's wonderful word is it changes how we see the world. God's word changes our eyes. It changes how we see the world. If you go back to one, verse 129, the psalmist begins this pace section by talking about the beauty and the wonder that he has seen and experienced in God's word. He ends it, however, by taking his eyes off of looking up from God's word for just a moment and putting them on the world around him. And as he looks at the world, he bursts into tears. Why is the psalmist so sad? He says it's because people do not keep your law. The psalmist sees a world that sees no wonder, no beauty, in God's word. It's not something worth keeping to them. How much are we bothered by lawlessness in our day? Jesus clearly was. Uh, he, Jesus, in the gospel, saw people breaking God's law in the temple, and he went on a table-flipping rampage. It angered him. And there's a, a place for righteous anger if we're careful about it. The psalmist and Jesus himself both rightly get angry about sin and people not keeping God's law. For the most part, though, I think we generally do a pretty good job about the getting angry at sin part. What I suspect we might not be as good at is grieving over sin. See, the psalmist's response here was not anger, it was sorrow. 
through God's word, he's experienced the wonder and the beauty of God himself, and it's completely changed everything about him. His actions, his thoughts, his desires, and the way that he sees the world. And he sees a world full of people putting their hope in created things rather than the creator himself, and he cries out in sorrow. He wants the world around him to know the wonderful nature of God through his word, but they refuse it. As modern readers, we have the advantage of being able to read this text in light of the whole counsel of God, both the Old Testament and the New. In the psalmist's response, here in Psalm 119, it seems to point us forward to one that Jesus himself had in Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, just days before Jesus was going to be hung on a cross to die, he sat on a hill outside Jerusalem, overlooking this unrepentant city full of unrepentant people who would soon face destruction. And Luke tells us when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus saw the idolatry in Jerusalem. He saw their inability to see the beauty and the wonder of God's word and the destruction that would lead them to And he weeps. He weeps over unrepentant people. He doesn't revel at their looming destruction. He mourns over it. Jesus' response to a world filled with lawlessness and idolatry was not to eradicate everybody. It was not to strike us all dead. It was to lay his own life down. It's God's kindness that leads to Repentance. Only the wonderful news of the gospel can change lives. The news that there's a God who created you and created me, who's perfect and he's holy. He's holy and thankfully he's also loving. He loves you so much that even though you and I rebel against him continually, even though you and I are prone to thinking that other things in this life are more wonderful than he is, He loves you and I so much that he sent his son to die for you, to die the death that you and I could have and rightly should have died, so that when you die, one day you don't have to pay for all those sins you committed in this life. Jesus can pay for them for you. That's the wonderful news of the gospel. That's the news our world so desperately needs to hear. Our world is full of people searching for significance, searching for something truly wonderful amongst a whole host of created things rather than looking upon our creator and his word himself. So church, let's let the wonderful nature of God and the wonderful nature of his word spur us to action. Let it change our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our prayers, our eyes, the very way we see the world. And let it spur us on to make disciples in the world that so desperately needs the wonderful news of the gospel. So I want to end this morning by reading some lyrics from one of my favorite hymns, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. We're going to read the the last verse and chorus together. It says, his word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. 
then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. And the chorus says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. God, you are far more wonderful than anything that this world can provide. God, our prayer this morning is that we would turn our eyes on you, our wonderful Savior and Creator, and that you would change every part of us. That you would empower us to tell the wonderful news of the gospel to our city and to our world that so desperately needs to hear us. So I hope that you help us to be conformed to your image and to your word. Amen.